You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King with an occasional focus on his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about all things that serve the King. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com, support us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer, and follow us on every level of social media at tower junkies pod i'm one of your hosts matt hurt and with me today as usual uh over google hangouts because of covid19 uh is tiny hi tiny what's up buddy not much how's it going it's going good man good are you excited to continue our review series about king's massive post-apocalyptic uh horror novel the stand never heard of it Oh, well, this is, uh, this is great. Um, this, this is, <laughs> yeah, looking forward yeah. to it. Okay, cool. <laughs> good, good. Uh, yeah, me too. It's been a long time coming. We finished, so we're continuing our series, um, reviewing the stand, uh, in three pieces, the novel, um, in the lead up to the stand miniseries on CBS All Access. So we're recording these kind of in a vacuum. We're recording these in the past, it'll be a couple months before you guys actually hear this. So today it is June 9th, 2020. And, uh, yeah, tiny. How, how's it been since our last recording of the stand? Uh, you know, not too bad. Not too bad. Still getting through all this, uh, virus stuff. Uh, and now there's people riding in the streets, uh, you know, Um, so yeah, 2020 is just nuts, man. It is writing and protesting and, uh, being tear gassed it's it's crazy it's crazy times um but yeah uh we talked a little bit about that in a patreon stuff in the past that i think will be posted um but yeah it's uh crazy times crazy times um yep yep how do you feel about covid though like right now with everything the for context we're recording this after our local government at least has started opening stuff up perhaps prematurely and uh, that, coupled with the protests going on for Black Lives Matter uh, in response to the George Floyd killing, um, how do you feel about where we are in terms of opening the economy and going out and doing shit? Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's really time for people to start getting back out there, um, despite the fact that I agree with you that it might be too soon. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I, I just feel like it's people are just going nuts. And like, mm. I think. I think we all know what the risks are now, mm. and I, I think everybody should be able to take their own risks. So, like, interesting. I I understand that by going out, if I go out, I could possibly infect other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, you know, if I'm asymptomatic and stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So I understand that that's like that's that's a selfish thing. Like, mm. I I totally agree with that Hmm. but i feel like at this point if you're like more at risk or whatever like you you have to make the decision to stay home as opposed Hmm. to everybody else has to stay home like i feel like you have to mitigate your own risk like you have Mm -hmm. to take your own risks and like 
I don't know if I'm really doing it justice, but like, <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like you. I feel like you can't you can't just keep people home forever. And like, mm-hmm. how long are we going to do this? You know, I. I don't know. I think you got to let let people start going out there, and you know, measures need to be in place. People need mm-hmm. to stay away from each other in public. Yeah. If you go into a restaurant, you have you need to have some empty tables between you. Mm-hmm. Like, there's obviously that stuff needs to happen. People should be wearing masks. Like, that's that's obvious stuff, yeah. right? Um, but that's yeah. Like, when you go out, do you wear masks? I do. So, like, my job, I'm required to. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and like, if someone sees us without one and they like report us like I could get suspended and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I actually, I take it seriously and I actually wear mine mm-hmm. like, like all the time. And so I've kind of gotten used to it. And like, I have a bunch, I have like a reusable one that I use at work and mm-hmm. like I have a ton of the disposable, disposable ones now. Yeah. And so because I have them available to me, like I do wear them a lot, even when I'm not yeah. at work. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I, I went to CVS today after work and I just went ahead and in there just, just because I think it puts other people at ease and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, so I do. Yeah, I wear it. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, and that's an interesting perspective to have as far as like mitigating risks and stuff. And like I'm not – I'm of the thought that like, okay, yes, we can – the idea that we should expect people to be able to make their own choices and stuff like – I get that, but also I kind of think everyone's a fucking idiot. Um, it's true. So, yeah. like, I don't know. Like, when I see, like, videos, it hasn't happened recently because of all the protests and everything, but, like, like videos of just douchebags, like, at, like, uh, at, like, the grocery store or something, like, complaining about having to wear masks. Like, okay, well, if it's a fucking policy of the business that you're in to wear a mask and you're not going to wear a mask, you're not going to patronize that business. Like, that's... Plain and simple. Like, that's the policy that I agree. Yeah. Forth. Yeah. You're not fucking entitled to whatever. Like, I saw one that just pissed me off so much. It was like a dude at Costco was, uh, uh, had a full shopping cart and like the Costco employee was like, you need to wear a mask. And then he's like, I thought I woke up in a free country. And it's like, fuck you, man. <laughs> like, God. It's not like, God damn it. And like, Every time, like, I saw the video a couple times and I was like, um, like, the Costco employee was super, like, like, really uh, amiable. And he was like, you know, it's our policy. You have to wear a mask. And if not, we're going to, you're not going to buy anything here. That's plain and simple. And, like, he took the mat or he took the cart and put it away. And the guy, like, left. But it's like, just get off your fucking high horse. Like, it's not a big, like, fucking wear a mask for the 15 minutes you're going to get the garbage that you're going to shovel into your mouth. And then go home and don't wear a mask like that. It's fucking simple. But like the thing that I kept thinking was like, I really hope that after this video services and this is, I hope that I hope that after this video has went viral, I hope that Costco also uh, implements a no sunglasses in the store thing because <laughs> um, the guy was wearing sunglasses and looked like just such a fucking tool. Um, yeah. God. Uh, yeah. I agree with that. Like the, the, the freedom you have to go home and not wear a mask is the mm. same freedom that Costco has to not allow you into their business exactly. without without one. Yep. Like that's it's the same principle. It's the yeah. same amount of freedom that you each have. Yep. And just like you can't you can keep people from coming into your home mm-hmm. if they're doing something you don't like, Costco can keep you from coming into their business because you're doing something they don't like. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what freedom is. Yeah. Ugh. 
Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we're here to talk yeah, about Yeah, I think one <laughs> of the big ahead. businesses has been Menards because Menards oh, is like the yeah. only hardware store that's requiring masks. Oh, okay. Yeah. And like I've, I've been to Lowe's and Home Depot a lot since mm-hmm. this whole COVID thing, but I've only yeah. been to Menards like once or twice. Okay. Um, but they have like a sign out front. It's like you have to wear a mask cover and they wow. have like a security guard mm-hmm. at the entrance. And wow. if you don't have one, they will sell you one. That's the other thing that people huh. are pissed off about. They'll uh, sell you one for like 70 cents. Like, uh, and, capitalism. yeah, people are, people are just pissed off. <laughs> like, well, what? you won't give it to me for free. You're requiring it. Why do I have to buy it? Oh, Jesus. It's 70 cents, though. Yeah. Go to um, fucking Lowe's. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I have I for I have broken quarantine quite a bit, um, which you know, it I wear masks and stuff. So, but yeah, yeah, yep, yep. But anyway, that's the past. We're in the future now. Where <laughs> we're talking about the stand. Um, yep. So yeah, so I wanted to mention before we get into it, this episode we're going to be talking about the book two of The Stand, uh, the complete and uncut edition of the novel. Uh, book two, On the Border, which is from July 5th to September 6th. I don't have the page numbers readily available, but you can check your table of contents and everything. So um, like we did last time, we're not going to spoil... We're going to try not to spoil anything in book three. So we're going to do books one and two. Like we're, Spoilers are on for books one and two. And before we get into that, I do have a few news items to go through, um, because, and which is interesting because we're recording this a while in advance, so the news is not going to be like recent, but I do want to just mention a few things. One is that uh, on May 20th, there was a uh, uh, an exclusive behind-the-scenes article about Stephen King's The Stand CBS All Access miniseries in Vanity Fair on May 20th uh, by renowned Stephen King writer Anthony Bresnikan, actually, who I've mentioned before on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, did you read the article or check out the uh, pictures of the uh, from this from the miniseries? Uh, yeah, I definitely did. Um, I, you know, I I'm cautiously optimistic about the the series. Um, mm-hmm. Because I feel like the one, the series from the 90s was meh. Yeah. Just very meh. Um, and I think this is a difficult story to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have faith in the people involved. And I, I like a lot of the casting choices. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also kind of hit or miss on CBS All Access. I, they're not right proven in my book by any means. Uh, reference our other episodes of the podcast where we talked about shows that are on CBS, um, CBS all access. Um, so yeah, there's, uh, there's some things to be excited about and be worried about, but, uh, I did enjoy the article. I I like that the, the set, the set photos were cool. Mm -hmm. Definitely cool. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really looking forward to it too. I'll put a link in the show notes, of course, for, for that article. But, um, one thing that stood out to me in the article was that um, the structure that they're going to have for the adaptation is an interesting take. It's not going to start, from what I understand, it's not going to start with the outbreak. It's going to start with you know them in Boulder and everything, and then I guess there's going there's they they are going to employ flashbacks, a la Lost, presumably, um, to kind of flesh out the stories of the characters and everything in the backstory. So. 
I'm pretty interested in that approach. I've got to say, I kind of wish we could, I, I hope that in some capacity we do get the like big outbreak scene in, in the, in the series. I don't know how that would be with that format, but I just, I just, I don't know. I just think it would be cool to see. Yeah. That format was encouraging. Like, I think that's a cool idea. Yeah. And the set photos look amazing. Like, uh, just seeing Alexander Skarsgård, uh, outside of the jail cell where, uh, um, God, I, I, we, I confuse his name with Harold Lauder. Um, Lloyd Henry. Lloyd Henry. Yes. Um, is yeah. the, I, I think I may have like initial dyslexia. Um, <laughs> cause I get them confused. Uh, Lloyd Henry and Harold Lauder. Anyway. Um, and there's one picture of Harold Lauder and Franny that looks like really bizarre. Like they're just sitting on a couch, but it looks like the wardrobe looks like really retro and I don't know, like I like uh Harold Lauder looks just really disturbing in it. Um so yeah. And uh the other thing was one of the pictures was one of uh Harold's messages on the wall. Um pretty interesting that I, I think that it's going to take place, or at least like that part of the story that where he's leaving uh signs behind is gonna take place in September, like in the fall. Um Whereas in the book, it was in the summer. So I wonder how the time frame is going to work out for uh, this adaptation. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Yep. Um, next piece of news I have is just a couple of shout-outs. Um, I can't remember if last time I mentioned um, these podcasts, but there's a couple other stand podcasts to kind of mention. One is The Circle Opens, which I've referenced on the podcast before. Um, really good chapter-by-chapter analysis of The Stand um uh it, it's it's a one woman show she's going chapter by chapter really cool like i'm someone like i host a solo podcast myself so i know how difficult and also how in, in, engaging and awesome it is so and I, it was funny cuz i listened to the first like chapter of it the first episode and the host she at the end of it she was like oh i hope that this was okay this was my first time ever doing a podcast and i was like uh this like <laughs> holy shit like that was it was perfect it was it was it was like perfect damn yeah some people just have yeah. a knack for that stuff oh i know and it took us like it's taken us like seven years <laughs> to <laughs> fake it um, but yeah but i was i was very impressed with it so check that out it's the circle opens um she also has a blog um, as well. Um, I think it's the circleopens.com, but I'll put a link in the show notes to be sure. And then the other thing I want to bring up is tiny. Did you listen to the company of the mad, the stand podcast? I have not listened to that yet. Okay. So we referenced it on another episode way back when we like in the now, um, <laughs> but <laughs> it's uh, a new podcast from, uh, Jason Seacrest, who is a writer and, and he has a Patreon, patreon.com slash Jason Seacrest. I'll put a link in the show notes. His name is spelled a little differently. Uh, S-E-C-H-R-E-S-T. So um, he started a new podcast, uh, The Company of the Mad, The Stand Podcast. It's him with a panel of people who are of very much of note. Um, let me bring that up here. Go to thestandpodcast.com. 
Okay, so I listened to the first episode. It's it's Jason Seacrest. It's Mike Flanagan. It's Anthony Bresnikan. It's uh 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 Du. Um, and they are just going through the stand 200, uh, 200 pages at a time. Uh, really loved that first episode. Um, at the time of this recording, there's only been one episode. Um, and man, it's so good. It's, I, I'm really impressed with it. Um, and, uh, just kind of just to brag a little bit, but Jason Seacrest, he tweeted, he tweeted out like how he started the podcast and everything. And like he mentioned that he listened to hours and hours of Stephen King podcasts and listed a bunch of them and we were included. And I was like, Holy shit, people listen to this. That's awesome. (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah. So I was, I was very uh, pleased with that. And also just a quick shout out as well is that, uh, uh, Reeve do, uh, she is, like, she's got a lot of, uh, credentials under her belt and everything, but, um, here in a couple of weeks as of this recording, her first TV episode is going to air on CBS All Access. It is an episode of The Twilight Zone, and, uh, I'll be covering it on Anthology. I'm really excited because her episode is, I think she wrote it with her husband, and it is, I believe it's called A Small Town, and it features, um, Damon Wayans Jr., which I'm really excited about because I like him as an actor. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, check that out on anthologypod.com. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, and check out that podcast, the standpodcast.com and the circle opens, uh, both great stand podcasts. And yeah, so excited about that. Whew. So tiny. Yes, sir. Have we gotten all of our new business out of the way? And should we go on to our review of book two of The Stand on the border? July... Um, <laughs> Let's freaking do it. Okay. So, all right. So just to be to be warned, we are going to be spoiling book two of The Stand. That is the middle section of the book, obviously, of three books. Um, and we will also be touching on book one as well, which we covered last time on the podcast. So, uh, without further ado, let's go into our thoughts on book two of the stand on the border, July 5th to September 6th. We are reading from the complete and uncut edition of the novel. So tiny overall thoughts on, on the border. Like how did you feel going into this section of the book and how did you feel coming out of it in kind of broad terms? And then we can kind of dig into the meat of it after we go through our broad terms? I sort of, going into it, I sort of remember this section of the book being kind of my favorite. Like this part with like the first, however, 10 chapters of the third part. Mm -hmm. um, We've talked ad nauseum about endings and and Stephen King's relationship to endings as a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think this book is one of those where the ending is I, I, the ending i don't want to say it's forgettable but it's not the most memorable part of the book the ending of book and two so, or of the book the itself? ending of the stand in general the okay. whole gotcha. ending like I, I don't i don't latch on to that part of this story yeah right and so i think to me the funnest part is the uh the gelling of the characters uh, yes. of, of our main cotet, if you will, yeah, yeah. Um, of characters in the Boulder Free Zone is mm-hmm. just the best part. Like that's that's some of my my favorite parts of this story are in book two. 
Nice. So I remember looking forward. I remember looking forward to this part of the book the few times I've reread it, <clears throat> and it it having read it, it sort of resolidified that for me. Like this is, I think this is my favorite part of the the entire book. Mm-hmm. The entire book is book two because I just love the way every everything everything comes together and starts to gel. The the characters the 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 setup of the conflict the beginnings of the conflict and the you know the sides are set and it's i don't know i just, i really enjoy this part nice i you know it's interesting cuz on paper i shouldn't really enjoy this part of the book as much as i as a, as much as i probably would otherwise um it's like it's it's a really I, I don't want to say slow moving because there is there are so many moving pieces in this just vast story, and what's interesting is that book two is almost completely one hundred percent Boulder Free Zone characters. Like we get very very little Randall Flag, we get very little Las Vegas, we get very little like crucifixions and stuff. Like we we've got just bare minimum of that, and I think that's a really interesting way to slowly build up to the third act of the story Um, because we get these characters that are just interacting with each other. They're getting to know each other. They're bonding. They're, they're learning how to rebuild society. And it's something that's, it's something that like the specter of flag is ever present throughout the entire section of the book, but he's very rarely like, called attention to or even seen in terms of the reader. Like I think we get like one, one or two like sections where we actually are with flag. And from what I remember and it like, it's, it's something that I think is really powerful in the storytelling because we get these characters that are bonding and are creating a society while all the while knowing that they're meant for bigger purposes and they're, that there's stuff on the horizon that's going to come. And I think that that's a really interesting balance to strike. And I, and I really think that it's, I don't want to say ballsy of King, but I, I think it's really, I don't even want to, I don't even know if I want to say it's unique of King, but it's like, it's very King to have, um, massive passages throughout, throughout this section that is just committee meetings, <laughs> like, like right. transcribed minutes from the Boulder free zone committee meetings and everything. Like it is, it should be like grueling to get through, but it is so like enthralling in its own way because we're part of the majesty of that is that we've just gone through a whole section, a whole third of a novel about the complete breakdown of society and the death of like 90 some odd percent of the human population. And now we're here in this intimate setting with all of these characters that are working toward like keeping the lights on. They're working toward, toward creating a community. And like, that is something that sticks with me. Um, whenever I think of the stand itself. So, yeah, I agree. It's such a fun shift from the first book. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, but we do get plenty of conflict and plenty of tension and everything. Like, even though, even though flag isn't really, present that much we do get like i said the specter of flag that's kind of hanging over it in the in terms of like harold's kind of seduction toward the dark side and and nadine's like pleas to try to get out of his shadow and everything like that 
like those kind of those two characters in particular are really fascinating in their development in this book because they're trying to break free of what could be construed as their destiny, but also like they have free will and they they could choose this, but they choose maybe a wrong path or two. Um, so it's, it's a really fascinating kind of character play. Absolutely. And it's what's so compelling about, I think Nadine and, and, uh, well, especially Nadine, but also Harold, is that it's it's really tragic what happens to them. Like it's not, yeah. it's again, it's not like they're evil people. Like they don't have those urges within them, but they're sort of victims of circumstance. Especially Nadine. Like I feel like she, like you said, you use the word plea, which mm-hmm. is perfect because she's she can see a path to staying in Boulder and not becoming subject to the wills of the man in black and Mm -hmm. Randall flag. And it's a very simple path, but it's, it's completely dependent upon other people. Right. And you know, and it's, it's so tragic how she, she pleads and begs, um, Larry, uh, Larry, thank you to, to take her in and, and Mm -hmm. sort of kind of give in to, the way he felt for so long, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and he, he just has, you know, he's kind of moved on from that and it's, right. it's really kind of tragic. Um, mm. And Harold is just kind of, kind of does it to himself in a way. Like I think, yeah. I think he's, he's been accepted for who he is mm-hmm. and, and I think they put a lot of limitations on him and he has these sort of delusions of grandeur. Like he's, yeah. he's clearly, remarkably brilliant Mm -hmm. but he is so he's so held back by his social his his social mannerisms Mm -hmm. and and frankly the way he acted and treated people like in the the beginning of the crisis like he's suffering the ramifications of that and he doesn't know how to handle it and it it just results in him taking the darkest timeline and going down the darkest path, you know, exactly. And it's, that's tragic in and of itself, despite the, despite how emphatically he gives into the dark side, if you will, he, how hardcore he goes, Darth Vader, you know, it's, right. it's despite that, it's still tragic. Yeah. He's Harold is kind of a victim of his own hubris. Like he feels like he's destined for great things. And then, but because of that, he's also feels like he's he should be subjugating everyone he knows. Like he should be above everyone else. Like his station is above everyone else because he knows more because he's better read than most people his age and everything. And it's just it's right. really incongruous to the society that they're building. And one of the things I love about his character growth in this in this in this section of the book, even though it does kind of seal his fate, um and, and make him irredeemable um, is that he has that pull. He has that desire. There are moments where he is like talking to Stu and like, like he, inv- like Stu invites him over for dinner with Franny and like, like you can like uh, Harold's inner monologue with uh, at that moment is just of confusion. Like he's, he's not sure. Like it's kind of a temptation thing. That's like, well, maybe I can be pretty good or maybe I, maybe I don't need to be, um, a pedantic brat and a, like a just a childlike person. 
But right. yeah, it's and it just leads to a tragic uh, conclusion in this in this section of the book, though. Yeah, and what what drives it home even more for Harold, in my opinion, is the fact that I think for like for me in the first act, the first book, I related to him kind of a lot, not because interesting I fit that bill, but because it's because of his infatuation with Franny, like mm-hmm. that that drives so much of his attitude and the way he acts towards people is is based on that right yeah. and and the way that that falls apart once more people are introduced to the picture it's it's once once the social aspect increases he he starts to lose ground and and, and the way i re- the reason i relate to it is because i think yeah, as a eighteen-year-old boy, I mean, you're technically a man, but you know, right. still very much, very adolescent in your thoughts and everything. Um, as an eighteen-year-old, you, most of us had that sc- schoolboy kind of crush infatuation yeah. on someone at some point in our teen years, mm-hmm. and it dictated a lot of our behavior. Right. And so, maybe not to the extent that it did with Harold. Um, and obviously we weren't in this setting, but mm-hmm. it's that that part of that aspect of his character is so relatable to me that mm-hmm. Harold had a charm to him in his own way because of that. Okay. That's and I feel like it's so it's so innocent in mm-hmm. the first act and it turns into this like literally evil thing in the second act and it's such a stark juxtaposition like it's just crazy how hard it flips and he just turns into this so such a angry and just Mm -hmm. like his thoughts just it's it's the inner monologue that he displays where he's talking he's having a conversation with with like um stew and he's thinking god i wish i could just kill him right now yeah that's just such a stark contrast from mm-hmm. Act One and Book One, Harold. It's 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 heartbreaking. Like it's it's really crazy. It is, and it's it also plays into this kind of sense of ownership that he has over Fran, and like it's stuff that was set up at the end of Book One, where like Stu is telling him like, "Oh, you have nothing to worry about and everything," um, kind of placating to his kind of delusional state of mind regarding Fran, but it kind of comes out in such a such a dramatic and tense and tragic way in book two and that he has this feeling that like well you know i've he has the sense of ownership over her because he was with her at the start of it and it's just a kind of grotesque attitude to have but it it is manifested in his desire to just eventually just cause harm and murder (laughs) to people Right. Um, it's just, yeah, it's, really it's, such, it's such an, it's such an immature mm-hmm. teenage boy notion that he has. Yes. And like yeah. I said, it just, it, it more, it morphs into something so dark mm-hmm. that it's, it's just, it's one of the more disturbing parts of the book. The, the, yeah. the path that Carol goes mm-hmm. down. And the slow build toward it too is just really intense yes. and, and dramatic. And, and, the thing that I kind of keep coming back to or I was really affected by this time around is that it's so close. Like they're so close to stopping it and stopping him. Like there's a moment where I think Larry is within a few inches away from like finding the ledger or Fran is like Fran finds the ledger, but doesn't open it or something or, or 
notices the the space where the ledger is but doesn't look through it um and it's just like that could have just stopped everything like could have like they could have stopped it um but you know cause a wheel so they yeah. couldn't stop it and poor nick um and some right. um but yeah to kind of backtrack how about nick uh meeting uh tom cullen uh, in the early part of book two, like that's one of the first things in book two is that he meets Tom Cullen and they have their little adventure. Yes. Uh, it's such a, such a fun pairing in this book. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great characters that work well together, but it's just such a, such an interesting and unique circumstance that a deaf mute meets a mentally challenged person. Like, yeah. It's just like who thinks of that, you know? Who who right. thinks to write that up? And the thing is, it's so challenging. It's such a challenging thing to write, where it's sort of like one person communicates in this such a childish way, and it gets no reciprocity whatsoever because he can't read, <laughs> and the other person communicates to the audience strictly through like inner monologue and like inner thoughts, you know, and is, is such this intellectually advanced person and is very smart and complex, uh, but can only communicate those ideas to the audience. Can't communicate it to the person that he's supposed to be bouncing his ideas off of. It's just such, it's such a fun dynamic. Um, It's, it's, it's just, Again, it's it's a it's it's a challenging thing to write, and like Stephen King could have taken an easy way out, and like right. him pairing. I, I think it'd be very interesting if he would have paired Nick with a character like Glenn Bateman. Mm-hmm. You know, you, he could have written a whole freaking book of just them oh, having a yeah. conversation, right? Absolutely. Um, and the, the, those two kind of going head to head in the meetings, mm-hmm. the committee meetings, is some of the coolest part of the committee committee meetings right yeah. um but I, I just think it's 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 so much more fun to pair nick andrews with tom cullen and have them get to boulder together like that's just it's just so cool and yeah. you know where it leads to in the third book is is really fun or at the end of book two actually right so. and it's it's a really like you said it's a challenging thing to put to these two characters that are that communication is their biggest uh, stumbling block together. Like it is a challenge to write that. And it's very, it's really fascinating the way that they grow and you really feel that kind of genuine connection that they form. Um, And then early parts of book two, they meet up with, uh, uh, God, what is her name? Um, Julie Lowry. Um, she is super vindictive and scary and she's, she's like playing with them and like tempting, tempting Nick, and it's just it's just really fun in a really cruel and disturbing way to see King play with this whole like idea of like okay, not every person obviously that we're going to meet is good. Obviously, this is a story of good versus good versus bad. But like here, we have someone who is just so emotionally stunted and so just immature that she is putting the the lives of people that are in their very nature good at in harm's way just for a laugh or just to satisfy her own kind of bored boredom and narcissism. So I just, I really appreciated that section of the book. Yeah, it, uh, it didn't, I didn't remember it very much, uh, from past readings. Um, and I kind of forgot about that character. Yeah. Julie Lowry, cause she shows up later, right? I believe so. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I I don't remember her very much, but uh, yeah, that's that's a part that I was that I also found fascinating, especially that like you know Nick sort of hooks you know hooks up with her, and like mm-hmm. it's funny because throughout it we're hearing his inner monologue, we're you know reading his inter- inner monologue, and he's sort of justifying it in a very carnal way, like he's he's sort of a Nick is so much a beacon of good and mm. like he's very righteous and stuff like that. It's just interesting to see him make such a impulsive mm-hmm. sort of carnal instinctive decision that like could have some pretty big ramifications. He's just like, eh, yeah. I'm going to nail this chick cause I kind of feel like it. And it's <laughs> right. kind of awesome. Like it's just, it's, it's sort of an interesting thing to see Nick go through. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, yeah. And we talked kind of, at some point off mic well technically on mic but we didn't end up recording but anyway that's a whole other thing uh the tornado scene with with tom cullen and and, uh nick when they're kind of trapped by it it kind of reinforces the idea of the dark man and flag and we get this kind of horrific big set piece where they're trapped and there's a tornado and they see visions of of the dark man. Um, how did you feel about that whole section of the book? It kind of, it happens very early in book two. Yeah. And I feel like it's pretty quick too. Um, but I think one of my favorite parts of it is the fact that Tom saves Nick. Mm-hmm. I think, I think we see, it's very easy to look at their relationship and just see how much Tom relies on Nick. Yeah. And, and he's sort of the dependent one, you know, the dependent one in the relationship, but mm-hmm. Tom ends up saving Nick's life in this and then during the tornado and Mm -hmm. Tom has this very, again, instinctual, I don't mean to keep going back to that, Mm -hmm. that word, but he has this very instinctive, instinctual reaction to the tornado. And he, like I said, it ends up saving Nick's life. And without Tom, Nick would be dead. Yeah. um, Or at least very badly injured. And uh, that's, again, that was such a fun or such a, such a good idea, I guess, creatively to, to lay out the importance of Tom Cullen and how he's not just this dependent character. He's, he has a role to play. And, you know, again, that comes up later on in in the book, but uh, yeah, that, that was one of my favorite parts of it is that Nick realizes how important Tom is as a result of that. Yeah. They definitely complement each other and like they're, they're a really good pairing and that speaks to King's writing that he can put these two characters together that have such a huge stumbling block between them and have them find this, um, camaraderie and bond that forms between them is just really, really well done in terms of King's writing. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of going back a little bit and kind of backtracking a little bit, um, Larry meets Nadine and Joe. Now I had forgotten about Joe as a character. (laughs) Um, Oh really? Yeah. And the way that he meets him is that he like, Joe is almost like this feral creature that he wants to just murder, um, uh, Larry as soon as, um, he meets him and everything. And Nadine kind of has to pull him back a little bit. Um, it's just, it's a really interesting dynamic to have this kid that is just so consumed with hatred and, and, evil in him that is really just kind of thrilling in a sense in this beginning part. And then later on when they're on, when they're in Boulder and he is bonding with uh, Larry and after he meets with mother Abigail and he reveals like his real name is something I can't remember, but um, 
it's just it's like the 180 that he does is just so um heartfelt especially with larry talking to him and and bonding with him so how'd you feel about larry and nadine and joe yeah it's uh it's a little disturbing um Mm -hmm. how feral is a great word to describe him i hadn't thought of that word Mm -hmm. um yeah he's again just sort of he's in this like defense mode and and just Mm -hmm. is a very has is not an intellectual creature at all just just very yeah survivalish and and feral um it's it's a disturbing aspect to assign to a child especially mm-hmm. i think he's supposed to be like 9 or 10 years old i yeah. you know not very old um yeah that's that's a disturbing thing and i i think it's it's interesting how that influences nadine as well um because she's very much like a purpose driven character she's very like distracted by taking care of joe and i think yeah the fact that she had she had that role and that responsibility really kept her on the better path yeah that she had laid out in front of her and and i think once joe starts to come around and lose that caveman instinct that he's operating with i think it really gives her a sense of waywardness and she doesn't have she doesn't have direction and that's sort of what it's sort of a catalyst I think for her confusion on, yeah. on where she wants to be. And again, that's, it's tragic, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. And that kind of the way that he centers Nadine at least for the time being is, is really kind of pretty hypnotic. Like the little family that forms between the three of them is just really kind of heartwarming in in a weird sense. Like when Larry gives him the guitar and he like is very instinctively like learning guitar and everything, it's a nice bonding moment. And then it kind of, uh, it kind of just changes and morphs. And by the way, his name is Leo. Leo. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, we don't get a lot of the dark man and the evil side of things, but we do get, um, trash can man and the kid um they're kind of adventures and everything um this from what i understand is not in the original cut it's one of the portions of the book that was cut out for reasons because the reason that this is the uncut and official or whatever um version is that when the stand was originally printed and originally published it was literally too long to like the (sighs) the the printer and the publisher could not like physically could not create the book um <laughs> so that's why king had to cut out so much stuff and then later on he added it back in but anyway um the stuff with trash can man and the kid it's it's weirdly like it's kind of disturbing to me because i mean the kid rapes trash can man and trash can man is like it's it's just upsetting because he is so complacent and just like fine with it and everything and like the kid is so erratic and and crazy and everything um it's just it's a really trippy kind of thing like uh the kid wants to destroy flag and then i can't remember how the kid dies um 
Do you remember? Uh, the wolves. The wolves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about the trash can man and the kid? Um, I really like it because, I mean, what's what's great about it is it's a source of power and confidence for mm-hmm. ultimately it's it's a display of confidence for trash can man he's mm-hmm. so again wayward is another word i come back to he's yeah. he's so um one track mind right. <laughs> um and and so just erratic uh that he he just sort of goes with the flow and and that's what happens initially with the kid is yeah. that he's he's really just along for the ride and he can't really get out of the situation and it's pretty dire and he's like totally at the mercy of this psychopath. Yeah. But I I just love the way it concludes with Trash Can Man sort of overpowering him because yeah. he is so revered and so important to Randall Flagg yeah. that he has this display of power at the end where he sort of commands these wolves to right. rip his throat out and kill the kid. This right. guy that was just dominating him for a few days and several mm-hmm. pages. Um, that's, that's the coolest part of it for me. And that's, that's the purpose of it. Um, but I just think the kid is such a, such a cool ass character to throw into the middle of the story. Um, he's so, <laughs> he's so out of sorts. And so like, uh, so all these characters are so driven by either getting to Boulder or getting to Las Vegas and they're very Mm -hmm. good evil. But this, this guy is totally not at all driven by that. He's just driven by going fast and drinking beer. Like that's what drives him. He's such an anomaly in the story Mm -hmm. and to put him with a character again, like trash can man is such a crazy pairing. Um, that, that juxtaposition is just, fun to watch and uh i um it's weird i think the first time i read this book uh 24 was at its peak at its height the show 24 okay and uh so i was really into Kiefer sutherland and i was like this is when like netflix getting dvds in the mail was still big like that was (laughs) (laughs) that's i'm kind of dating myself there Mm -hmm. um but uh i was sort of when that was a thing, I would kind of make my way through certain catalog, like actors' catalogs. Sure. And because I was such a big fan of Kiefer Sutherland, I was watching his old stuff. Okay. And so I kept picturing the kid as Kiefer Sutherland from like the Lost, like Lost Boys, oh, Kiefer Sutherland, okay. like like with a mullet, pompadour, mm-hmm. like spiky blonde hair kind of thing. That's that's who I picture as the kid. I don't know why. That's. Huh just where my head was at the time and so that's the only person i can picture playing the kid is like <laughs> 1985 key for sutherland which makes no wow. sense whatsoever that it's goofy you, that does i just googled uh the pictures and everything because i haven't seen lost boys in very very long time um mm-hmm. i could totally see that i kind of pictured a kind of a 50s greaser kind of kind of guy totally um, kind of like um the the guy uh Gil Bellows's character in the Shawshank Redemption um i kind of pictured like his look but more like gruff and evil like the kid that uh Andy Dufresne tutors yeah okay yeah um but yeah that's that's really interesting nice 
Um, I was thinking yeah, you were going to say, yeah, I was thinking you were going to say Kiefer as uh, as uh, Ace Merrill. <laughs> that see, that's that's funny. I was I was just about to say, you know, both of those actors. You thought of another Stephen King property, and I thought of a <laughs> an actor who was sort of got one of his big breaks in a Stephen King adaptation. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Stand by me. So yep. yeah. Yeah, that and that's kind of a an anomaly of the of the book of this section of the book because we don't really get much else from the Dark Man and from from Flag's camp. Um, it kind of ends with a trash can arriving in Vegas, and um, we get insight into Flag ordering people to be crucified in Vegas, um, which that imagery is just intense. Like I'm. Like it's just it's just crazy to me. Like there's a little bit of flag in the in this section of the book, but it goes a long way. Like, did that stick out to you at all? Definitely, super disturbing, you know. And I think one of the coolest parts about it is how, you know, nobody in the the dark zone, um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, in Las Vegas, is like. Mm-hmm. No, no one's like enthusiastic about it. No one's right. like, oh yeah, this is you know, it's just kind of how it goes. Mm-hmm. These he deserves to be. These people deserve to be crucified. Like it's everyone is so disturbed by it and and participating in it so reluctantly. Yeah, it's it's just very evil. Like just totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's one of the coolest things about it is how everyone is looking because there's for they're being forced to look and forced to participate in it and the only one who's having a good time is randall flag yep yeah oh yeah um to go so on the other side of things we get mother abigail we get her backstory and we get her kind of conveniently leaving the scene for a very long passage of time yeah um how'd you feel about mother abigail's arc her introduction and her backstory and everything um, I kind of forgot how much of her backstory was was really laid out in the mm-hmm. book. Um, how she was, you know, her family was her father and her family is kind of a figurehead in uh the part of Kansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, yeah, Kansas, uh, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, how d- despite the fact that there is a she came of age and has lived through the 20th century which was not historically kind to black people right um despite that she managed to be a important person in her community and is revered in her community and um she was able to be a pretty normal person despite all those all those aspects of being a black person in the 20th century in the south especially right um so I enjoyed all that and that was all I kind of forgot about that part about her character. Um, mm-hmm. But I think um, there was a podcast. I don't even know if it's still around hmm. called books and nachos. Oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I can't even remember what the guy's name is who does that podcast, but he uh, reviewed the stand mm-hmm. and he had a really good point where, I don't know if it was like when this book was written um, or it's it's just like he, he talked about how sometimes writers will create this magical black person character. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's kind of 
it's a bit of a crutch mm-hmm. and it's sort of problematic and it, it's 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 sort of like a response like a white guilt response to racism mm-hmm. and it's it sort of seems like it's not I don't really know how to wrap my head around it or how to articulate it, but it's it's almost like it's it's almost like it's a crutch or it's sort of lazy to like yeah. be like, well, I'm not racist because look at how important this black character is mm-hmm. to the you know this is the most this is truly this character is the true north of goodness in my story, and it's yeah. it's a black person. So like, not only am I not racist, but one of the most important characters in my story is a black person and they have these magic powers and they save the white people and stuff like that. And it's like, he, he does a much better job of explaining it. Um, my best character is, is black. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) My best character. That's great. Um, But that's, you kind of, exemplified it there yeah it's mm-hmm. it's sort of like that haughty thing that white people will do sometimes by saying yeah, yeah i'm not racist my best character is black yeah right um that's that's how it kind of comes off and like she's definitely a good character but right. it's just like i don't know i think i think it's just a bit off-putting or a bit problematic mm-hmm. that that her character has that aspect to her and honestly like king King has honestly he's he's caught a lot of flack for that because I mean it's not just Mother Abigail. I mean you've got Dick Hallam, yes. you've got uh John Coffey and a bunch of people of color that I'm blanking on now. But um he he has caught a lot of flack for that. And like I remember there was some Oh, oh! Is when King tweeted about the um, awards and how he said that um, how he said that he bases his awards choices on merit only, and like race and everything doesn't play a factor in it. It just should be on merit and everything. And he caught a lot of flack for that because a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, instances of minority voices being silenced and people of color not getting their their projects funded or anything like that. So we all we covered that in a previous episode, but. Mm-hmm one of the responses I saw was that they called out the fact that he has a lot of the quote unquote magical black characters. And I, I mean, it's hard to defend it or it's hard to argue against it. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the right person to kind of comment on it or anything, but um, right. I could see it being, you know, obviously problematic and everything. Definitely. I feel like it's, it's like he's trying to apologize for throwing around the N-word a lot because he has racist characters in his stories. Uh, like Yeah. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's what it is, but that's sort of what it feels like. That's an interesting perspective. I, I had never considered that. Huh. And and it, and it's funny because like when you think about I think about another storyteller like Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. who uses the N-word a lot in his movies. Yeah. And has a lot of racist characters in his movies. Mm-hmm. But I I'm sure he's probably been accused of being racist before, but it's not something that like is part. It's not something he's had to address a lot. Right. And it's just like, he just has racist characters in his stories because there's Mm. racist people in the world. Right. 
and it happens a lot and he doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't try to make up for it. It's just there because that's kind of how racism is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, like, again, I can't say that that's kind of what Stephen King's doing. I'm not saying he's apologizing for that or it's, it's a way to counteract that or counterbalance it. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I, that's what all, that's just kind of what comes to mind is like the way Quentin Tarantino addresses racism in his stories. It's, it's very much on its face. And, yeah. I'm not saying one's better than the other either. I'm not, right. again, I'm not articulating it really well. It's just, yeah, it's just kind of, and I don't even have a big problem with like John Coffey or Mother Abigail. Like I don't think they're yeah. bad characters by any stretch and it's not shitty writing. Like you can't mm-hmm. say that at all. Like I just don't, but it's, it's just kind of a, it's something that kind of jumps out, I guess. Yeah. And, and he, King hasn't really done quite well with, in terms of just writing, just African-American characters either. Like in the, in the Bill Hodges trilogy, like it always struck me as just kind of really awkward and, and uncomfortable whenever, um, uh, Oh God. Jerome. Jerome. Yeah. (laughs) Whenever Jerome would break into, uh, his Tyrone, Tyrone feel good character that is like really playing up this, like, this slave owner relationship kind of thing because he does chores for Bill Hodges. Like it, it really made me uncomfortable. <laughs> and Man, like, see, I thought that was hilarious. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Like fair. that caught me every time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it just, it just makes me kind of feel a little awkward for King that he's putting that in there. And like, I don't think that King is a racist person or anything, obviously. Like I think he's a very progressive minded person and and like his politics line up pretty well with mine um but it is like i think he has that kind of stumbling block in his writing in terms of that like even in the dark tower series i think when he writes for Detta and odetta in the drawing of the three i think it's just really it's granted it's it's kind of a unique situation there's a split personality thing and and it's a it's crazy in and of itself, but it feels like it's just a borderline caricature and it just feels just yeah. really awkward to me. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but maybe we can revisit that at some point as a, as a topic for an episode. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, I do remember I did listen to books and nachos a while back and they do still have episodes coming out. So, Cool. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't stick with it. I really. I think I just listened to his Stephen King episodes. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I did too. He. Um. I don't remember his name, but he also does now playing podcast, which I know Mike is a huge fan of. Okay. Um, yeah. But anyway. Uh. Yeah. So Mother Abigail, she kind of goes away because she feels like she is. Um. She has sinned, or she's. Uh, she needs to atone for her behavior and stuff. So she goes on a pilgrimage into the into the wilderness and i felt like that was a little too convenient like it was just a way to kind of get her out of the picture um how did you feel about her kind of absence throughout most of the second half of this portion of the book yeah i'm not i'm not sure what the motivation was there frankly for that character um or for king to put that into the book i i always thought it was kind of weird and um i don't know i i feel like he sort of didn't know what to do with her once because she you know the onus of her character was to draw everyone to boulder they saw Mm -hmm. her in 
their dreams and and she's this central figure she's she's a symbol and frankly that symbol had served its purpose in a way and and right. she was pretty much just be she had almost become just like a mascot and yeah. and i think she was she had this kind of like false idol uh idea about her and that's that's what made her feel guilty and i understand that and i, I you know i understand why she felt that way mm-hmm. um and i don't even disagree with it um but yeah i i don't know i i'm it's going to be interesting to read book three again and and because i don't remember exactly what happens uh to her character but uh yeah i i don't i don't have a big problem with it but um it was. It did also did seem like sort of a distraction, like how they're all out searching for her and stuff. And yeah, um, to your point, she dies at the end of this section of the book. Did she? Die? That's right. I yeah. can't remember. Um, which we'll get to that in a bit. But I want to say I'm trying to do some quick googling, but uh, in on writing. Oh sh- crap! Hang on. Okay. In on writing, King mentions that. Uh, um, I, I, like he had really hard time, uh, with this writing, with this, with this, with this book, essentially. He had a really big bout of writer's block. And I want to say that this was the section where he really came, uh, where, where he re- almost abandoned the project. I, I can't say for certain, but I do know that the anecdote is that he, was had some extreme writer's block for the stand and he kind of put it away and then he went um, kind of on a walk or something and then kind of just suddenly had an epiphany like, okay, all of these characters are doomed. I need to kill a bunch of them and send them (laughs) out to Vegas or something. Um, And I want to say that part of that might be like a byproduct of that writer's block is that he didn't know what to do with mother Abigail. Um, I do like the idea of, her being like you said a beacon for for the good and to bring them together and i i like in theory the idea of this person this somewhat magical person um brings all of these people together and then they are now looking at her for guidance and then she just up and leaves um and so they're kind of lost they they have to figure out for themselves i i really like that dynamic i just kind of wish that it was kind of handled a little bit cleaner, I guess, in, in the book. Did you feel any of that or how did you, how, yeah. Um, not necessarily. I didn't feel a ton of that because I feel like the, the, the committee, the free zone committee was mm-hmm. filling a leadership role. And I, sure. I didn't, I didn't feel like a leadership or a, uh, like a drive vacuum, if you will. Um, and I feel like the conflict which the committee brings it up that they're kind yeah. of they're kind of focused on well let's let's get the let's get the power turned back on and let's mm-hmm. get some law and order and let's get you know um this going and that going and this committee and this subcommittee and all that when really the biggest conflict of the book is that Randall Flagg is out to get all of them yeah and it's it's sort of in the background um and i i think the passing of mother Abigail kind of brings that back home and, mm-hmm. and sort of refocuses them. Um, and, and kind of lights a fire under them, you know? Yeah. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I do like the confluence of events where she returns just as the bomb is about to explode and the chaos is about to rain and everything. But we'll get to that in a second. I do have a couple of other points I want to kind of hit uh, before we get to the kind of the big part of it. Um, the Boulder Free Zone, the, oh, oh, first I'll actually get backtrack a little bit more. One of the things that I really liked and I, we talked about it in, in about book one, but what I really like about the book as a whole is Larry's kind of mental image of Harold and how that mental image is just shattered when he meets him in Boulder. <laughs> um, I just, I love that, that dynamic and how like Franny is, is kind of confused by Larry who is kind of maybe not um, idolizing Harold per se, but he has Harold up on this, on this pedestal and like just the wind getting knocked out of his sails when he meets Harold and realizes like, this isn't the guy I thought he was. Um, <laughs> I just think that's a, that's another example of the characters kind of coming together and meeting in unique ways and, and everything. So how'd you feel about their kind of meeting? Yeah, it was, um, it was really fun. And, and like, I just, it's, it was, sort of nice to remember Harold in act act one because we're, we're following him down such a dark path. And like I said, that's, yeah. it's so tragic to see him go the way he does that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to have Larry with that image in his head. And, and uh, it is comical to see when he finally meets him and it's all shattered. Like you yeah. said, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely fun. And, uh, but again, it sort of adds to the tragedy, I think. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of is indicative of Harold's hubris a little bit. Like it's this persona that he's putting out into the world where he is not necessarily indicative of that persona. Like he's he's kind of an ass. Um, right. And it's just really interesting to see that dynamic at play. Um, and it, it would have been so fun. It would have been even more fun to have Act 1 Harold mm-hmm. meet Larry like like if Harold was st- like by the time they meet if Harold would have still been the same old Harold mm-hmm. to have them meet would have been even more entertaining because yeah. Larry would have had him built up so much in his head and then like Harold is totally putting on a show a bit of a nice guy show with Larry um but if it would have been act 1 Harold he you know he would have been like well yeah you're an idiot and I'm a genius so <laughs> right of course you know and like he would have just been this this condescending little shit and yeah. like it would have just pissed Larry off instantly right <laughs> it it would have been funny as hell like it would have been oh yeah all Harold that goofy bastard you know and like <laughs> Larry oh you had no idea what you were in for it would have been the fucking comedy basically oh yeah <laughs> but it's again it's just tragic because of cool. what Harold's become um yep yeah yeah and i would say that harold it was always in harold in book one but not like it was still up in the air like he had a choice like he had he he could be good or evil he could he could kind of walk the path of the righteous man (laughs) um to bring it back to tarantino but no he could have been a a pillar of the community and everything but the tragedy of harold is that he is just consumed by himself and his narcissism. Yeah. Um, and jealousy really. Um, so to kind of move along, the committee makes the choice to enlist spies to send out to flags camp. Now the, 
they s- decide to send Judge Ferris, who Judge Ferris is is a pretty cool character. I feel like he's a little underwritten or a little underdeveloped because throughout this section of the book, I just kept getting him confused with Glenn Bateman. He kind of felt like <laughs> they felt like it felt like Glenn Bateman and Stu Redman were the same as Judge Ferris and Larry. Like it just felt like it was very weird, like kind of connection there. Um, did Definitely. You, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's only there's so many damn characters, and it's such a long book. Oh, it's hard yeah. to really round out everybody. Yep. But I would have loved to have had more Judge Ferris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Judge Ferris, Dana Jurgens, and Tom Cullen are the three spies that are selected, and they use hypnosis on. Tom Cullen, uh, how did you feel about this element of the story, like using hypnosis to kind of get him to snap out of it and come back and everything and just, yeah, how did you feel about that, the magic of it? I think it's really effective, but it's also kind of convenient. Um, just the uh, them choosing Tom for that role and having him do that is compelling because of his mental handicap but i feel like the the hypnotism is just a bit it's a bit convenient and makes it a little more it adds to the plausibility of it and the it makes it a little less compelling but the scene the hypnotism scene in and of itself is just cool as hell like it's yeah i just love the way it goes and how um the one character god i can't remember his name um like Nick's translator, basically. Oh, uh, the um, old, older kind of um, hillbilly Brentner? guy, Ralph. Ralph, Ralph Brentner. Ralph Brentner. Yeah. Yes. How he's like so disturbed by it that he can't even be present for it. Yeah. Like I, I really enjoy his reaction to it. Like I think that's, as a reader, his reaction is sort of how I feel. Like this is like it's just, it's it's a good idea mm-hmm. to send Tom, and because he's subjected or because he's sensitive to hypnosis it makes him a good candidate but it's also such a morally on its face it's almost morally wrong to do and he just can't he can't live with that and can't get his head around it and like that's sort of how i felt as a reader yeah i can definitely relate to that and i can definitely respect that i didn't really have a problem with it i did kind of enjoy the kind of added mysticism of uh, to the story in this part, because for the most part, a lot of this has been pretty straightforward and everything, aside from the dreams and Mother Abigail and flag sorcery and everything. But within the Boulder Free Zone and the committee and everything, I did like that they had this kind of hypnosis thing and that they also had um, like Leo can read minds and everything. It's just like little bits and pieces here that are kind of uh, showing that the world isn't exactly as it seems in this in this world that is created by King. Right, right. And, and in the in this world of some magic and uh, fantasy that, mm-hmm. that he's building, um, hypnosis is kind of fun because it's it's sort of magical in its mm-hmm. nature, but it's also like in the real world and in, in real life. There's some. It's it's almost like a pseudoscience. Like there's. Yeah there's psychological science to back up that hypnosis can be an effective thing. Like Mm -hmm. it's not everyone is susceptible to it and it's kind of a, 
hit or miss thing. It's it's not a concrete method of psychology or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's a proven thing that can actually have, you know, it, it can have an effect on people. It can actually be an effective tool uh, in the psychology world to use. You know, it's so it it's just kind of fun that there's these there's these little grains of truth to hypnotism that yeah that it, it's 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 fun because it's it's like i said it's kind of a pseudoscience and it's kind of a, a real thing but it's also sort of mystic and sort of um what's the word i'm thinking of sort of supernatural-ish kind of like it's mm-hmm. got this it's got a bit of a stigma to it you know what i'm saying yeah um that i think makes it a cool storytelling uh tactic sure so I do appreciate that about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, to kind of move along, do you want to kind of start wrapping up and get to the end of the? Yes, we probably should. Okay, cool. So um, there's some Nadine and, and, and Harold stuff. Basically Nadine gets word from flag that they know and everything and that, that the committee knows what she's up to and everything. So, uh, and what Harold's up to. So they need to kind of get the fuck out of there. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, yeah. So we get to kind of the end of the book, um, this section of the book and kind of all hell breaks loose. So Harold creates a bomb in a shoebox, and he sets it up in the meeting at the house, uh, where Nick Andros is and with a bunch of other people. And this is one of the more intense moments of, of the book and of Stephen King's career that I've read, honestly, in my opinion. Um, the bomb goes off and sadly it kills Nick Andros, one of my favorite characters. Um, although he's not as prevalent as I remember him being, I think it just sticks, yeah. stands out because of this ending to his character. Mm-hmm. But what I love about it, the, the beauty and the poetry of it, like the K first of all, the chaos of the group coming back to the house saying that mother Abigail has been found and she's back and everything uh, complimenting the hectic nature of the bomb about to go off and the bomb going off. But what I love about it, the poetry of that moment is that Nick finds the bomb just as Harold hits the walkie talkie and says, my name is Harold Emery Lauder. I'm doing this of my own free will. And I think it's brilliant that his message, like his big, like message of terror and, and, and like his the big moment of his life that's been leading to this literally falls on deaf ears <laughs> like i just <laughs> i think that is just glorious um yes yeah how did you feel about this whole section of the like the the big climax of this section of the book uh it's very um it is super intense it's it's very like thrillerish um i kind of i i enjoy that Franny kind of has a bit of a premonition about it and gets like mm-hmm. a bad feeling. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not like the shine or anything like that or the touch, but right. it's, she just has sort of one of those weird, inexplicable supernatural premonitions that are, you know, people get feelings like that. And it's something you can't explain. And that's, that's kind of what's happening to her. Um, I sort of appreciate that aspect of it. It makes it more intense and, and, uh, more, more thrilling. Um, so I do, I do like that part of it, but yeah, it's, and, and it's, it is super sad that, that Nick has to be one of the ones that goes, but I think it, it's also his death coupled with mother Abigail kind of 
solidifies the drive or the it, it drives home the seriousness of the situation because mm-hmm. like I said they were all a bit complacent um, and sort yeah. of keeping Randall Flag and the you know the happenings of evil kind of in the background and sort of not focusing on that properly and the the death of Mother Abigail and Nick is sort of a symptom of that and it's kind of a it's sort of their penance for that sin if you will yeah um, they got too complacent so yeah yeah the complacency is is the major theme of it I think but uh, yeah it's it's sad but it's so it's such a good way to wrap up to be the crescendo of book two it's yeah. it's so thrilling and it's like it's kind of my favorite ending of the book if that makes sense because there's sort of three three conclusive parts of the book with mm-hmm. with the stand being broken up into three different books right of those three endings this is kind of my favorite one so i i agree it and we'll talk in in the next episode but um what i'm wondering going into book three of the stand is the few times that I've read this before, I kind of wondered, like, does the book recover from that? Does the book, like, utilize that thrill and that that big turning point in the narrative and create in it a, a satisfying third act? I genuinely don't remember. I remember several parts of it, but I don't remember how I felt as a whole, and I'm curious how it's going to resonate with me now that we're reading it now and kind of dissecting it the way we are. Yeah, me too. I agree, yeah. yeah. Um, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the denouement of book two. Uh, so we've got Mother Abigail on her deathbed, and she is saying to the group, first of all, Glenn speaks out about Flag in the meeting openly. Like everything, it's like, okay, we're done, we're done pretending that this evil doesn't exist. Like he's attacked us. We need to go find him. Like this is, this is what we're here for and everything. Um, and so we so we're getting it set up that the we're setting up the titular stand. <laughs> um Mother Abigail is sending four men west and I love this I love the implication of this. Like it is this biblical kind of pilgrimage that she's putting Larry, Ralph, Stu and Glenn on. And like by that they have to take it on faith. They have to go on uh, they have to go on this pilgrimage with no food or water. They have to travel on foot. It's just a very biblical kind of kind of thing. It's the the four princes that they're sending to sending west is just really satisfying and, and enthralling to me. Um, How do you feel about the setup of the stand and us seeing off the princes at the end of the book? Well, it's such a stark part of the story because everyone's. I, I, everyone was kind of riding high, you know. They had yeah. reestablished society, and things were better, and people were starting to find happiness again. And then this tragic thing happens. Um, and and in addition to that, some of their most respected leaders have to leave, you know, yeah. on on an act of faith, like you said. And it's so it's it's dark. It's really it's sad and it's like things were going so good. And now there's all the, all this stuff is up in the air right now. And it's, yeah, it's a very, it's just dark. That's, that's the best way to put it. But you know, sometimes the, the dark stuff is the best and that's totally, it it ends up being the most compelling parts of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, and uh, the, the sadness of, 
Fran, especially at yeah. <clears throat> Stu having to leave is really hard. One of the hardest parts of that. Danny Ma. Yeah, their kind of farewell is really heartfelt and everything. How did you feel? We didn't really talk about Franny and Stu's relationship. How did you feel kind of in overall terms about their relationship and their growth as a couple? I feel like they kind of, because at the end of book one, you know, Stu kind of mentions through, and we, as the reader, we experience it through his inner monologue or his mm-hmm. thought that he's, he's under, he realizes he's attracted to her and that right. he, wants her um and so it's we kind of figure they're going to get together and it happens very quickly in book two and um it's so it's so pivotal for all this tragedy that they get together but it's it's kind of um it's interesting how quickly they fall into how quickly they fall in love and how quickly they turn into this kind of like married couple. Yeah. The kind of dem, uh, domesticity. I don't know if that's a word. I really don't know if that's a word, <laughs> the domestic yeah. nature of their relationship. It just feels very kind of a little pat really. Like it feels like, I think part of, I think it's not a problem really. It's just ineffectual to me because a lot of it is coming through the perspective of Franny's journal or her diary that we're reading passages from throughout it. And that kind of sets it into a, into kind of a adolescent kind of romance kind of thing. And when it grows into like a real, like full fledged romance and everything in marriage, it's like, okay, fine. Yeah, sure. Um, we kind of got bigger things going on. Dudes making a bomb. Um, <laughs> so it kind of, <laughs> right. Felt like, it gets, yeah. It gets so real so fast, and they—they yeah. like I said—they just—they fall into a pattern so quickly. It's mm-hmm. kind of, it's like there's no there's no like um, honeymoon phase. It's just yeah. very, they they fall right into it, and that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that on its face. It's sort of a circumstance of, it's a symptom of the circumstances they're in, right? Yeah. They you kind of have to ask, act fast, and yeah, and it's sweet in and of itself, but it's also just like the threat of it or the drama of it is contingent on Harold. And like that, that dynamic is more kind of secluded and clandestine and everything. Like it's not something that is at the forefront. Like they're not having big arguments or whatever with Harold, or they're not really that uh, conflicted about it. It's just like you said, they're just kind of already in a rhythm and it's just kind of like, all right, this is how it goes. This is life in Boulder. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, so we send off the four uh, pilgrims for the quest uh, to take a stand. And uh, I do really, really love, I don't remember who exactly said it. I think it was Larry, but don't quote me on that. But the last line of this section of the book is, I think it's Larry, says, um, or it might be, it might be Glenn, but he says, I feel like this is the end of everything. And I just, I love that that's the, that's the, what we end on in this book, uh, in the stand. Wow. I, yeah. It's very poignant. Very cool. Very poignant. I love it. Um, so yeah, are we talked out of book two? Yeah. I think we book? broke it down pretty good. Sweet. Yeah, I think so too. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, let us know what you thought of book two of the stand. Uh, next time on the podcast, we're going to talk about book three, the conclusion of the stand book three, the stand, uh, I already closed my notes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, where is it? Okay. Book three, the stand. 
September 7th to January 10th. And I think Tiny, well, I won't say it on, on, on air. We'll talk after, after recording. But yeah, uh, we'll have that next time. And uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you guys for listening. And we'll see you next time. Long days and pleasant nights. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We're rusty, man. I know. <laughs> Long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think the problem is that I just recorded an episode of Anthology before this, so Oh yeah. yeah. Sure you're in that mind that mode still. Yes, that's why I was rambling. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I don't know. what. I, there's no problem. Okay. Uh, well, I did. I know that you and Kirsten yes. on, I think, Obsessive Viewer, mm-hmm. you talked about um, Middle Edition Schwartz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you watch it? Did you watch it? I did. I did. Paige and I watched all of it. Nice. Okay. First of all, <laughs> I keep saying in my head, uh, fraternities <laughs> and also <laughs> in a really fucked up way. I keep, <laughs> I keep saying the, uh, the, uh, more power for the executive branch. The president can do no wrong. <laughs> the president can do no wrong. <laughs> So how how did you like it? How how did you like it? Oh, we thought it was great. I, I haven't listened to your guys' review yet. I haven't I haven't gotten there, but uh, but yeah, we uh, we loved it. It was we actually watched a lot of it. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to TowerJunkiesPod.com/archive. You can also like our Facebook page at Facebook.com/TowerJunkiesPod. And follow us on Twitter at Tower Junkies Pod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at TowerJunkiesPod.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official obsessive viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for obsessive viewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and OV Anthology Pod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, 
tiny side project podcast which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. Kitty!